Hey everybody, how's it going? Thanks for joining me this afternoon. I've got a great stream that I think you're really going to enjoy. So a lot has happened the last few days, and this one is going to be a little more of a catch-up. Usually I kind of spend an entire episode on one topic, but today there is so much going on, so many stories that I wanted to comment on that I figure I'd go through a couple different ones here. So the first one I want to talk about real quick is, of course, everything that's happening with Russell Brand. For anyone who happened to miss it, Russell Brand has been out there talking a lot about kind of what's going on with the pandemic, what might, what might be going on with large pharmaceutical companies, or what might be happening with the war in Ukraine. A lot of things that really you're not supposed to talk about. I, in many times he's had to move over, I think, from YouTube to Rumble due to the amount of censorship that's been happening around the things as, that he's been talking about. Now, Brand's kind of an interesting character because he's obviously very left. Like, he's, he's obviously... a pretty progressive in a lot of areas, but he has had some very interesting conversations. I've found uh, his podcast with people like Jordan Peterson to be interesting. And so it's been really uh, odd to watch his journey here to kind of watch the way that he has moved from one position to another, because again, he was somebody who was very Hollywood comedian, incredibly progressive left wing. And I wouldn't say he's on the right at all yet, uh, you know, or or at all. But I would say that he is definitely asking questions that are making people uncomfortable. So it's been very interesting here that recently Brand has been accused of uh, sexual harassment and even possibly rape. There have been uh, four, I believe, accusations that have come out. One from a girl who was as young as even 16 during the time of the alleged incident. And they're all claiming that Russell Brand had very inappropriate behavior. This has uh, prompted others to kind of come up with their stories about Brand and, and kind of how he interacts. And the really interesting thing is that YouTube has uh, preemptively demonetized Brand. So even though we have nothing but uh, these accusations, which are anonymous, by the way, and we don't have any evidence, there's been no due process, there's been no charges, no, no kind of legal action fire, filed at all. Uh, YouTube has decided to go ahead and kind of basically take uh, all of the monetization options away from brand, make sure he can't make money on his YouTube channel. So there's a bunch of different things that I think that we should consider when we kind of look at this situation. The very first thing is the likelihood of brand, you know, being involved in these things in the first place. A lot, I've seen a lot of conservatives jump to defend brand. A lot of people saying, Oh, we gotta, we gotta, Stand up for brand now. I hear what they're saying. And in the free speech arena, I'm going to agree with them. But a lot of them are stepping up and saying, oh, well, he he is only these are all false accusations of because of the things that he has now said, the positions he has now taken. He's now taking edgy positions. He's now taking more right wing positions. He's now taking more dangerous uh, positions. As, and this is why he's being hit with all these allegations. Now, I'm sure that that's true, that that's why these allegations have surfaced now. But I think it's dangerous to assume that these just aren't true. I mean, look, Russell Brand is, let's be honest, he doesn't seem like a great guy. He seems like somebody who's had a past. Look, we've all had a past. None of us are perfect. We're all sinners, uh, you know, but but it feels like Brand is the kind of guy who could definitely have done some of these things. He's somebody who used drugs a lot. He's somebody who has put himself in a lot of very... Uh, you know, questionable situations. Now, I don't know. I have no clue. I am saving my judgment entirely, uh, you know, uh, for, for kind of what information comes out. But I'm just saying this is not maybe the guy to cartwheel in front of, to kind of put your 
uh, personal credibility on the line for. Brand doesn't even really agree with you. That's kind of the next thing. I, you know, I did this whole stream about Bill Maher and how conservatives love to dive in front of Bill Maher, even though Bill Maher hates their guts. And then they just can't stop, you know, praising Bill Maher for, for keeping it real and telling the truth and, you know, against the wacky left while he goes around and hates Christians and, and, and slanders everybody. And, and it feels like kind of a similar thing is happening here with Russell Brand. Conservatives are so desperate for somebody to cool to like them, right? They're just so desperate for somebody cool to really like be on their side. But I think it's pretty obvious that, you know, Brand, while he might share some current concerns about, again, you know, the war in uh, in Ukraine or kind of what's going on with Big Pharma, while he might be speaking some of those truths, and I, I support him to the level that he's doing it, I think he's valuable to the level that he's doing that, I don't think that in general Brand is on your side. And so you don't need to dive in front of this guy. People, um, in the, especially mainstream conservatives, they love to cancel people to their right but they love to defend and embrace people to their left, right? And the same, which is also true of the left. So we're always open to the left. We're always have dialogue with the left. We're always, uh, you know, defending the left, but we're always canceling to our right. And this is just a perfect example. You know, Brand is not on your team for most of these things. Again, when he says things that you like, when he says things that are edgy, that are pushing back, that are dangerous, uh, you know, because they challenge the preferred narrative, by all means, you know, that, that you, you can go ahead and work with that. That's good that he's opening people's minds up to this. But let's not confuse this with an ally. And let's not put our kind of personal uh, reputations, our, our credibility on the line, defending somebody who very well might have done that. And that's kind of the next thing I want to talk about is, you know, if these things did occur, and again, I have no clue one way or the other. I really don't. But if these things did occur, that knowledge has been out there for a long time. Right. The, the, these incidents have been known. They've been circulating. There's no way that their current, uh, you know, that they've currently just arisen due to a complete, uh, you know, accident. They didn't just come out of nowhere. People have known in these circles. People have talked about them. Journalists have looked into them. Uh, you know, the, the rumors have been around Hollywood. This stuff has been known. So, yes, it's absolutely coming up for a reason. But that's a really interesting dynamic to think about. If these things are true, then for many, many years, because these allegations are made over the space of like seven years, I believe. For many, many years, that means that a lot of people who are in the know about this stuff covered it up. They actively kept it under wraps. And that's a thing that obviously the regime can do for you, right? We only have to look at Jeffrey Epstein. To kind of understand how this works, right? If you stay on the right side of things, uh, then they'll probably disappear a guy like Epstein to make sure that the things that you have done stay hidden. But if you go off the reservation, all of these, uh, you know, uh, forbidden fruits that you've sampled, all of these extremely transgressive actions that you've taken, all of a sudden, you know, they can they can be revealed. That that's how the blackmail game works, right? You get people to buy in. This is the most one of the most classic. Uh, you know, kind of kind of intelligence things to do, get people to buy into really risky, morally questionable, uh, just degenerate behavior, and then hold that evidence over their head, right? That if any moment they say something that's wrong, they do something that's wrong, that can be revealed. That very well could have been the case with Brand here. That very well could have be what happened, that that these things were known in Hollywood. These are things are accepted in Hollywood. And let's be honest, we know these things go on in Hollywood all the time. That's part of kind of what happened with this whole Me Too thing, right? Was that some of that leaked out, but nothing near what, what, what was there actually leaked out. None of that stuff has stopped. 
to be really clear. Hollywood is still allowing this stuff. They're still protecting this stuff. They're still promoting this stuff. And so the fact that, you know, th that this went on and that this was protected while uh, Brand was on the reservation, I think is pretty obvious, which means that when he steps off of it, all of a sudden there's black this blackmail material that can be presented to the people. So again, when he is speaking out against really bad things, when he's speaking out against the corruption and the lies that surround many of the things like big pharma, uh, kind of the, the current efforts of, of pushing us into war with Russia, that's fine. It's okay to speak out and, and to agree and to, to amplify those things. But just, again, don't, don't blind yourself to the fact of like who this guy is and what team he's really on. I mean, he was on Bill Maher a couple months ago, I think, and, and, you know, he was talking about all this stuff. He's talking about how the left has gone crazy. He's kind of doing the routine. And then what's his answer to all this? He says, well, everyone should just vote for Bernie Sanders because Bernie Sanders was on the panel, right? So, so this is a guy who's not thinking very deeply about kind of the implications of the threads he's pulling. He's pulling threads, which is good. It's good to have those guys out there pulling the threads, you know, getting people kind of uh, figuring out what's going on. Hey, who, who's this famous guy that I used to like? What he's what's he talking about? Like, that's a valuable thing. But understand that his solution is just to hand things over to Bernie Sanders, who's obviously just controlled opposition for the Democratic Party ever since, uh, you know, they, they stole an election from him. He just completely, uh, you know, made himself the submissive of the Democratic Party. And uh, now now they just use him as as this, like, boogeyman of the far left. Oh, yeah, Bernie Sanders out there. He's got real radical reform, you know, as he acquires the next lake house from campaign donations. So just, you know, just keep that in mind. Now, the last thing to talk about here is, of course, probably the most important part, which is the YouTube aspect of this. It is the fact that YouTube has preemptively canceled brand. They have preemptively demonetized brand. Now, of course, we know that demonetization is not the same as being banned, but it is very close, right? Because demonetization wrecks you in the algorithm. So it makes your reach much less. You're far less likely to, to get reach, far less likely to have a larger audience to get uh, suggested in the algorithm, that kind of thing. And of course, most importantly, it keeps you from making money. Now, Brand's a wealthy individual, uh, you know, so who knows how dependent he was on the stream of that. But of course, remember, these things trickle down. So, you know, th this was, remember that the original thing that uh, you know, this kind of happened with is somebody like Alex Jones, where they just nuke him off all these platforms and he becomes kind of the canary in the coal mine for what can happen. Where Brand is a far more high profile target, right? This is a major movie star, major comedian, a major celebrity, well liked by the talk show circuits, you know, all that stuff. This is a guy who's a very public uh, persona. You know, he dated starlets. He went out with people like Katy Perry. This is somebody who's in the public conversation, not just some crazy thing that your, you know, boomer uncle, you know, would send in emails to people. Like this is this is somebody who people know very well. And so when a guy like that gets demonetized off YouTube, that means something. That means that there's not really a whole lot of barriers left, social barriers. Of course, there were no legal barriers. YouTube could always do this if they wanted to, unfortunately. But these social barriers of like, okay, we still have, we, we might have the technical ability, we have the legal ability, but we have to be careful about who we pull off of the screen because people might notice the way that we are expressing our power that is kind of gone and that's very scary because that means that youtube now feels like they can demonetize anyone for virtually any reason again that was always true due to the way they crafted the terms of service the terms of service are specifically designed to make political cancellation very easy uh, effortless without any real substantive 
uh, kind of process. It's supposed to look managerial it, from the outside. It's supposed to look like there's a process. It's supposed to look like there are concrete rules, but there are no real concrete rules. There's nothing, you know, that that said like if someone somewhere makes an anonymous accusation, we are required to remove your monetization. They just did it because Brand's hope, uh, high profile. He's saying things they don't like, and they could they could they felt like they could get away with it. And so with this new development, you kind of have this constant ability. You know, we assume in many ways that our ability to make money is a natural right, right? It's something that we have as a person functioning in society that the government should not be able to interfere with unless, unless there's an actual criminal action, right? There's an actual criminal charge. But the thing is with this no, new melding, of kind of the private and the public sector, the way that these things work. If you speak out against the regime, if you speak out against the government program, then the private company who is completely on board with everything that the government is doing and wants to reinforce that message can go ahead and punish you for that. And technically, no amendments have been violated, no constitutional protections have been violated, and the you know the the private corporation has the benefit of not having to go through due process, not having to forge any legal counsel, not having to do any of the things that otherwise would be part of your rights and protections as a citizen of the United States or resident of the United States or whatever. And so that means that people like Brand can just be canceled, can just be you know removed from platforms or significantly hit uh, you know knock down the algorithm, demonetized, make it so they can't make money you know on, on these platforms. And that kind of, you know, can can censor them without any real, uh, no real accusation has been made. No, no police report. No one has to put their reputation on the line. Someone just makes an anonymous accusation in a magazine somewhere. And this implies it. Now, again, with Brand, I'm kind of inclined to believe that this probably did happen somewhere along the line. But I don't know that. They don't know that. And they totally should not have the right to go ahead and apply this to somebody who has and had no real evidence brought against him. But of course, he's saying the wrong things. He's pissing off the wrong people. And because YouTube works hand in hand, like all these large social media companies with the government, we know this from the Twitter files, they are more than happy to oblige. Now that speaks to the need for alternatives. You need places like Rumble. You need places like Odyssey. You need to have things like Blaze TV where people can still have that. But remember, these are not the biggest megaphones, right? As long as as much as all of those platforms are essential and you should follow content creators there and you should, uh, you know, have, be plugged into news and have alternatives there. Those things are not the biggest megaphones, right? And, and while they're, they're, they're essential, they're never going to have the reach that something like YouTube has. They're never going to have the reach, of, you know, of a Twitter, a Facebook, like these mainstream, large scale uh, platforms that continue to be able to just have massive reach everywhere. And so it, even though you should have those things, you should have that option. It's good that they exist. You can't just assume that you know, th those are sufficient because they're not reaching everybody. You're always going to have some aspect of preaching to the choir in those scenarios. And so you really have to make sure that there's still the ability of people to have presence on these mainstream platforms. All right, guys, we're going to talk about a couple different things, including the government's attempt to uh, Trump proof the deep state. But before we do, let's hear from today's sponsor. Universities today aren't just neglecting real education. They're actively undermining it. And we can't let them get away with it. America was made for an educated and engaged citizenry. The Intercollegiate Studies Institute is here to help. ISI offers programs and opportunities for conservative students across the country. ISI understands that conservatives and right-of-center students feel isolated on college campuses and that you're often fighting for your own reputation, dignity, and future. 
Through ISI, you can learn about what Russell Kirk called the permanent things, the philosophical and political teachings that shaped and made Western civilization great. ISI offers many opportunities to jumpstart your career. They have fellowships at some of the nation's top conservative publications like National Review, The American Conservative, and The College Thinker. If you're a graduate student, ISI offers funding opportunities to sponsor the next great generation of college professors. Through ISI, you can work with conservative thinkers who are making a difference. Thinkers like Chris Rufo, who currently has an ISI researcher helping him with his book. But perhaps most importantly, ISI offers college students a community of people that can help them grow. If you're a college student, ISI can help you start a student organization or a student newspaper or meet other like-minded students at their various conferences and events. ISI is here to educate the next generation of great Americans. To learn more, go to ISI.org. That's ISI.org. All right, so the next story that I wanted to talk about is uh, the idea that the Chicago mayor has decided that the best way to solve the problems that they have in Chicago is to start having government-owned, city-owned grocery stores inside Chicago. Now, of course, Chicago, like so many of these urban areas, so many of these areas with high crime, is experiencing what is unfortunately a very regular phenomenon, which is that these companies are just fleeing. They're, they're just leaving, right? They're, they're getting out of there. Why? Well, because they can't operate. The, the, the areas around them are dangerous. Uh, they're dirty. Um, they, they see a high degree of shoplifting. They see a high degree of vagrancy outside, uh, drug usage, other crimes that scare away clientele that otherwise would be uh, you know, patronizing the store. And they have a huge problem with trying to consistently stay open and stay profitable in the area. Now, the, the fact, despite the fact that many of these companies continue to operate in Chicago, you know, without any real profit, they've just had to slowly close their stores. For instance, there was one uh, Whole Foods that was operating in Chicago, but apparently they were having trouble, you know, getting customers in. They tried to keep their prices low, but they couldn't do the amount of theft and that kind of thing, which meant that people in the community who were not wealthy, you know, Whole Foods is expensive for me to shop at. So if you're somebody who has, you know, in an economically depressed part of Chicago, you're probably uh, not going to be able to regularly shop at Whole Foods. And it just became less and less uh, tenable. All that on top of all of the loss from uh, shoplifting, the, the possibility of violence in the area, that just means that they eventually had to vacate the area. But of course, this creates community outrage. Now, is the community outrage over the fact that crime is extremely high? No, of course not. Are they outraged that the police are, are not enforcing shoplifting law and, and, and you know that, that they're not making the area safe for people to come in and spend their money and, and, and kind of increase the quality of the area. No, they're not angry at any of that. They're angry at the store for leaving because what was coming in was like a save a lot, right? Which is a discount uh, store. It's one that doesn't really have same quality of food. You're going to get a lot more Funyuns and a lot less kind of fresh produce in a store like that. Now, you can still make healthy choices in a save a lot. You know, that's, I think, something that's uh, overplayed very often by the left. The idea that you don't have any healthy food in these places because uh, they're, they're uh, angling for uh, a lower socioeconomic uh, status. But I think you can still make healthy choices inside that. You can still buy chicken breasts. You can still buy white rice. You can still buy vegetables. But it is true that there will be fewer healthy options, fresh food options in that area. And so there are a lot of people who are very angry about this. And this is where we get the, the leftist notion of the food desert, right? They're creating a food desert. They're fleeing it. Now, 
of course the left says oh where they're, they're fleeing it because they're poor and there's there's minorities and they just don't want to be there but of course <clears throat> they're fleeing it because of the real world implications of the policies being applied here look if there's consistently crime in an area if there's consistently high levels of shoplifting and the liberal you know progressive politicians have decided that they cannot police that specifically because of the minority percentage inside a given neighborhood and because that'll look bad on the news because that'll look bad on their statistics because they're worried about the implications of policing that particular community well that is a situation that is manufactured by the city by the politics by the decisions around what they see as demographics in that area it has nothing to do with the choices of the uh, grocery store itself and so the only solution of course, is not to increase policing. It's not to get honest about the kind of situation inside uh, the community. It's not about uh, you know enforcing kind of that broken windows policing of small things like shoplifting that seem small, but eventually grow into much more dangerous and difficult things. No, we're not going to address any of that. Instead, what are we going to do? We're going to create government stores, right? We're just going to do communism, basically. We're, we're going to create bread lines. But let's be honest, like, do, who knows if even if these stores will work? Okay, so the government goes in, they open up these stores. But if these areas were already high in crime, if they are already having shoplifting problems, are these government stores, are they going to be, what, protected by the police, by, by the National Guard? Why are these going to be any more resilient to those issues? Okay, maybe they can have fresher food, a lower price, you're hoping to subsidize all of that. I guess that could work for a while. But again, if you have a persistent problem of crime in the area that you refuse to address, then this is eventually just doomed to failure. And that's kind of where we are as a society right now. We would rather embrace the known failed solutions of previous communist regimes than we would actually like to look at the real understandable issues that are happening inside these communities. There is a crime problem. There's a crime problem for many different reasons. But if you're not willing to address it because you're worried about how it will look, if you're worried about how what demographics might be reflected inside an arrest inside that community, then you are just dooming yourself to continued failed policies. And all you have left to do is to continue to blame you know, the government or, or to continue to blame corporations instead of getting honest about what's really going on. All right, I wanted to go ahead and take a look at another celebrity here. Let me go ahead and bring up the video of uh, Louis C.K. So Louis C.K. was on the Joe Rogan show here recently. I'm going to make this a little larger so you can actually uh, see what's going on here. Louis C.K. was on the Joe Rogan uh, show here recently, and uh, he had this to say about how America should be interacting with immigrants. But my feeling is they should open it, the border. And just let them pour in, let everybody pour in. And and then the answer, which is, well, then there will be all these problems. Yes, there should be. It shouldn't be so great here, is what I'm saying, in America. It shouldn't be. It's a weird thing to sequester a certain group of people and try to keep upping their lifespan and their lifestyle. So what Lucy K here has is, is a problem with the idea of a nation, right? That's literally what he's arguing against. It's weird that we would separate uh, some portion of you know the entire population of the world and work for their betterment and not just the betterment of every human being who ever wanted to be here. And so his only solution is open borders, right? The, the, the only solution is open borders. Why? Well, because we deserve it. We deserve open borders. We should be punished 
Uh, we, we, we should not have this level of prosperity. We should not be having higher lifespans. We need to bring everything in and we need to equalize everything. And this is just kind of the, the, the sinister nature of progressivism in a nutshell, right? Because everyone, everything must be equal. They, we talk, oh, it's, it's about equality. It's never about equality. It's always about equity. You'll always end up here because there is no justification in liberalism at the end of the day for inequality. There is no explanation for inequality. Therefore, there is no justification for inequality. And so the logical conclusion of liberalism is always this version of, you know, radical progressivism, you know, neo-Marxism, kind of whatever you want to call this, communism, whatever you want to call this. It's always this end state where we are not allowed to have borders. We are not allowed to have a division of kind of how, uh, you know, our, our world is ordered because it will prefer some groups and it will always be, uh, you know, deleterious to other groups. And so that's what he's saying, right? We should just be allowing this. I'll play a little more. And just keep trying to increase that for this group of people. And then everyone's, and then this pressure of people trying to come in so they can enjoy it. Uh, and then it gets worse and worse down here. I mean, I'm not in Canada. It's really just from down here. Uh, there's something wrong with that. That's not a system that's working. And it forces people to do cruel things to other people. There's a lot of people that die so Americans can be safe. Mm. They're just dying, you know, weddings that are drone bombed in Yemen because the guy said something that might have resulted in American insecurity. Not even like definite American deaths, but like just so we can breathe a little easier. Folks die and folks do labor in unsafe places. Louis C.K. here is having a problem with the idea that you would have any national defense at all. Now, look, there's plenty to say about the, uh, you know, the, the errors, uh, the egregious nature of overreach, uh, the, the expansion of mission of the U.S. empire when it came to the war on terror. There's, there are very fair points to be made about kind of the unnecessarity of many, many actions that have been taken by the U.S. when it comes to that. So I'm, I'm not defending that here. But it's very clear that for Louis C.K., the idea that you would prefer your country and its safety over anyone anywhere in the world is a problem. And this is a really big issue for all kinds of people, even people on the right in general. Because, again, many people on the right who see themselves as classically liberal or even many Christians have a hard time explaining why it's legitimate for a nation or people to prefer its own well-being over the well-being of others. And that's what Louis C.K. can't do here, right? James Burnham called liberalism the suicide, you know, said it would be the suicidal ideology of the West, right? And the reason he said that was that liberalism strips out any allowance for particularity, any allowance that something might not be universal, any allowance that you for why you might prefer one thing over another, which makes it impossible for you to defend anything because everything's up for debate, everything's up for discussion, everything is always vulnerable to critique and dis and being uh, you know uh, broken down, and so there's never a hard limit. There's never these axioms of like this is who we are and this is who we protect and this is who we defend no matter what, and it doesn't matter. Uh, you know, kind of what you bring against it, we will always, you know, kind of draw a line here, right? That can't exist in liberalism. And because it has no ability to do that, it has no ability to defend itself 
because there's no reason why you should prefer the liberal principles of openness and discussion and universality over any other principles. It's all just becomes relative. Nothing is rooted in anything. There's no tradition it's tied to. There's no specific people it's tied to. There's no specific land it's tied to. It's all just, it could just, you know, it's, it's this universal acid that destroys all bonds, all preferences, all moral, uh, you know, kind of connection. And so because of that, there's no reason for Louis C.K. to understand, like, why you would be able to prefer your own nation over someone else, why you would prefer that the quality of life for people in America would be better. And you would prioritize that over just letting anyone from India or China or Mexico or Venezuela or Haiti or wherever into your nation and and bringing down that because that's what he's going to say here in a second. He's going to realize the end point of this here. I'll play the last little bit. He's going to he knows where this is going. He understands the implications of what he's saying. He's just OK with it. Places so that we can keep the prices where we like them. There's so much about American life that other people pay for. That's part of it. But also, it's not good for us either. It's not a good way to live in a gated community. You know, if if you let folks pour in like any other way. I, I want to be clear. Uh, I'm the first one who's willing to relocate uh, uh, Louis C.K. to his favela of choice since he is against gated communities. He is against protected communities. Uh, I think that it is essential. Um, whatever, whatever neighborhood just lost its Whole Foods in Chicago, uh, Louis C.K. should be required to live there uh, for the remainder of his life because he just doesn't believe in, you know, uh, in, in, in gated communities. He doesn't believe in, uh, you know, in preferring, uh, you know, kind of one area and, and um, you know, d differentiations between areas. He doesn't think that should exist. Dave, it'll kind of slosh. And then y'all just, things will be different. I, I don't know, like, there what'll really happen? A bunch of people, like, will they just come with knives and start <laughs> killing everybody? I don't think so. But Well, uh, uh, so two things there. First, like, of course... Yeah, he's like, oh, well, uh, you know, what are people going to just come over and, and be violent? Well, yes. It, like, if you have a open border, you have no clue who's coming over it, obviously. Like, that's the whole thing of what an open border means. Now, will most of the people who come over not be violent? Yeah, because, like, most people aren't uh, deeply criminal. But you will have no control over whether you have gang members coming over, whether you will have uh, drug traffickers coming over, whether you'll have uh, human traffickers coming over. And, you know, there's all these all these terrible things that, you know, uh, happen on the border right now. You've been with all of this restriction and policing or whatever level we have, but we don't have that much, to be honest. When it comes to bringing people in here, uh, you know, so uh, all that will still occur, but it will happen at an even higher level. So will that happen? Yes, of course it will, Louis. Sp very specifically, if nothing else, the very terrorists, you know, that came over on something like 9-11. I mean, they came over with passports, right? They came over with visas. In many ways, that's how they were able to circumvent this thing. But that kind of thing obviously will be more common. It will be more open because there'll be no barrier. So, yes, the very thing you're talking about will happen. But on top of that, he kind of talks about how everything will just, you know, the title come in and then it'll go out and then everything will just kind of level off. And this is the idea, right? That is everything will eventually level. And at some point we'll reach this this equilibrium where everything will be level and everything will be fine. We'll, we'll you, will reach this uh, much desired equality, liberal equality. And that will be the point at which everything will be great. But of course, that is not what is going to happen. That's not what's going to happen. Hierarchies will always exist. They are part of nature. Okay. As soon as people have any level of ability to interact, one person acquires more than another. 
One person holds down another. One person is raised up. Another person falls behind, sometimes through direct action by someone, sometimes by just the natural fact that some people are smarter, they're more prudent, they're more careful, they're more thrifty, they're more organized, they're stronger. Like, the truth is that people are not physically or mentally equal. They might be equal before God. We might all be equal in the sight of God. But when it comes to the way that humans compete in the real world, they are never equal. And so they will, we will never have this eternal equilibrium where everyone is just equal. And so what determines the quality of life of people is like how they organize. And when people organize effectively, they create advantages for themselves and those who are part of the organization. And when you do that with a nation, everything else goes up, right? The whole nation can succeed. But if you just let anyone into the nation, then you can't organize anymore because you're you're adding more than the organization can bear. You're adding people who are unfamiliar with the organization, who don't share the same goals as the organization, who are unwilling to work towards, uh, you know, don't have the capacity to do the things required by or the organization. You are adding all kinds of variables that will eventually destroy what the organization has built. But of course, Louis C.K. again, just he's just he's just temporarily embarrassed liberal, right? He's just. Uh, I'm, you know, I, I had these massive advantages. I'm rich. I live in these places. And at the end of the day, I know I'm never going to lose enough to really get like kicked out of that stuff. So yeah, sure. Open the borders. Let everybody have whatever they want. That's fine. Right. We deserve it at the end of the day. Not me personally. Like I'll still be safe. I'll still be rich. He's not giving away all of his money. He's not letting all his kids be in you know dangerous situations or whatever. But, you know, in theory, people, us in general, right. This abstract, we, the abstract deserve it. Not him specifically, never, of course, but somewhere out in the red states, you deserve it. And that's really what he's saying. That's how all these border situations work, right? That's why the the New York mayor is now, you know, trying to rescind his sanctuary city uh, statements because it became clear uh, that actually once the consequences of that stuff showed up, uh, you know, it was fine when they were all sitting in the red states, when they're sitting in, you know, Texas or Florida, it was fine to let as many immigrants come in as you want, because who cares? They're not affecting you. But now that they're showing up in you know your hometown, they're filling up your schools, they're demanding things from your hospitals, they're making your uh, roads unnavigable. Oh, all of a sudden it's a problem, right? All right, uh, one more here, guys. Corey, let's get to our main story, of course, which was uh, Trump and the deep state. So up here real quick. So Donald Trump obviously uh, was stifled by many of his attempts to uh, kind of get policy enacted. He had a large amount of problems trying to bring in personnel, trying to uh, change the way that the government worked, trying to make policies happen. This is something he ran to over and over and over again. Now, I think a lot of people who've been looking at the government always knew that this was an issue, right? That, that the federal bureaucracy, that the deeply entrenched uh, kind of apparatchiks all throughout these different uh, parts of the executive branch, the civil service, these things, they were not interested in just following the direction of whatever president happened to get elected. Instead, they had a very specific agenda of what they wanted to do and how they thought the government should run. That agenda was largely leftist. It was largely progressive. These are people who all went to the same colleges. They all graduated from the same programs. Uh, they all uh, kind of watched the same TV shows, go to the same uh, you know, uh, plays, uh, concerts, those kind of things. They all have the same culture. And so they all had an idea of how the country should be run. 
So whether a Republican or a Democrat was in power, at the end of the day, we were always moving towards this progressive direction. Now, a lot of people today call this the deep state, right? The, this idea of the deep state. Curtis Yarvin called this uh, the cathedral. Whatever terminology you want to use for it, the left has been kind of doing this thing where it it denies the existence of this, but also celebrates the existence of this. So they're constantly saying, oh, the deep state, that's a that's a conspiracy theory. You're crazy. How could you say that? Of course not. Of course, that's not how the government works. Don't be ridiculous. But at the same time, they constantly write stories like this, where they basically acknowledge the existence of the deep state and its importance and its power. And so uh, I want to read a little bit of this New York Times piece because it kind of reveals the way uh, that two sides can look at the same issue. The right looks at the deep state and says, this is terrible. This is a disaster. We have to figure out how to change this. The left sees the right, recognize this advantage that it's had for decades. And it says, oh no, they figured out the game. We better lock it down, right? And so they're, so they're denying the existence of this bureaucratic monopoly. They're denying the existence of this deep state while actively taking steps to protect it and kind of you know uh, boasting about it in the New York Times. So let's go ahead and take a look at this piece real quick. It's called Biden administration aims to Trump proof the federal workforce. If Donald Trump wins a second term, he and his allies want to revive a plan to allow the president to fire civil service workers who, uh, who are su uh, supposed to be hired on merit. The Biden administration is trying to thwart it. So this piece took three people to write, which is kind of a joke, but journalism. All right. So uh, when President Biden took office, he swiftly canceled an executive order uh, his predecessor, Donald Trump, had issued that could have enabled Trump's, uh, Trump to fire tens of thousands of federal workers and replace them with loyalists. But Democrats never succeeded in enacting legislation to strengthen protections for the civil service system as a matter of law. So if you've been listening to my channel for a while, you know that I've talked about this a lot. I've actually had Andrew Kloster on who is somebody who is part of the Trump administration. He was involved in staffing of the Trump administration. Uh, they've been looking at this for a long time. They started to understand, you know, as they went through, the, you wish they would have figured this out beforehand, but I understand no one thought Trump was going to win. Trump didn't think Trump was going to win, let's be honest. Uh, and so they didn't have a plan in place. But as kind of the administration wore on, they realized that it's not just policy, but personnel is policy, right? In these positions, you can write all the white papers you want. You can give all the instructions you can you can uh, you can want. You can set up all these standard operating procedures that you want. But at the end of the day, if you don't have personnel that are interested in implementing the policy that you want to enact, then it simply won't happen. And so near the end of the administration, they start to figure out, okay, we need to figure out how to get rid of these entrenched people who are constantly blocking our ability to advance our policy goals. And so they came up with this idea called the Schedule F. And the Schedule F was this executive order that was going to make it way, way more uh, uh, easy to fire uh, a large swath of the government bureaucracy and put your own people in. So they're exactly right about like what the Trump administration wanted to do, right? They want to take out the people who are loyal to the Democrats and they want to replace them with the people that are loyal to the Republicans. Now, the trick that they're going to keep trying to pull here is pretending that actually there's this thing called the civil service. Now, I know the civil service exists, but my point is they're going to pretend that the civil service is inherently neutral and the people who are there are completely there on based on merit and not because they are, you know, diehard leftists who are loyal to the progressive ideology. And so removing them is removing all of these really well-qualified 
uh, meritoriously hired experts and you're just taking them out and putting in a bunch of Trump flunkies. But actually what you're doing is you're just replacing one set of flunkies with another. Because the truth is that anyone in these positions has an ideology. They're loyal to that ideology. And their willingness to do their job is going to be you know, proportionate to uh, kind of how loyal they are to their ideology and what rule, you know, kind of the ruling people, the people in charge are trying to push down. And so if you want to get anything done, you have to have the ability to replace personnel who are not going to do their jobs. But of course, they're going to portray that as some kind of sinister thing and something that has to be stopped, even though they would deny the ex existence of the deep state. So now with Mr. Trump seemingly po uh, poised to win the GOP nomination again, the Biden administration is instead trying to effectively Trump-proof the civil service with a new regulation. On Friday, the White House proposed a new rule that would make it more onerous to reinstate Trump's old executive order if Mr. Trump or a like-minded Republican wins in 2024. So interesting here, they're still worried about Trump, right? Which, which is kind of interesting. Uh, they've got him in this position where they're, you know, they're, they're bringing all these charges against him. He's going to be going through all this legal, all these legal issues. Uh, they're doing everything they can to make it as impossible uh, as they can for Trump to actually become president of the United States again. And yet still they are worried about what could happen. Now, Ron DeSantis fans might say, oh, well, they're really worried about Ron DeSantis coming in. He's a far more effective, um, you know, policy guy. He's much better with the bureaucracy, making things happen. He's much more willing to kind of uh, make this happen. Maybe that's the case. I don't know. I think, you know, I think they're naming it Trump for a reason. I think they are more worried about Trump. But either way, you know, may maybe they are worried about DeSantis and DeSantis would be more effective in this way. But that makes it all the more important for them to be able to lock this down. But of course, the problem is that this is all just executive orders, right? They, they, they Like I said, they were not able to secure in legislation the ability to, to basically protect these uh, progressive jobs inside the deep state inside the federal bureaucracy and so because of that all they really have is just like layers of executive orders and regulations but if anything can be done with the executive pin then it can be undone with the executive pin as well which means like the shifting possession of that pin is really all that matters and they're going to kind of realize that as we go on in this article uh, but trump allies who would most likely have senior roles in any second trump administration shrugged off the proposed Biden rule, saying that they could simply use the same rulemaking process, roll back the new regulation, and then proceed. Le legal experts agreed. So yeah, I mean, the whole point of the executive branch is it's that it's supposed to be run by the executive. But that's the thing, right? They are worried about managerial power has to reign supreme. The oligarchy has to reign supreme. You cannot have anything that is quasi-monarchical. You cannot have anything that's that's that smells of one man who's able to cut the Gordian knot, even if it's only inside the constitutional purview that was specifically laid out by Article one for the executive. You're still not allowed to have it even there. And so what they want to do is wrap the executive in in layers of bureaucracy. They want to they want to put the same restraints of, you know, kind of standard operating procedures and best practices and distributed power and managerialism around the president itself, even though the role is specifically designed to avoid that. Look, the framers knew that you didn't want everything to be democratic. You needed certain things like the military to have to be uh, directly wielded by a single person, to someone to cut through and have that executive power. But as the country has grown, the executive branch has gone from one person wielding most of the power 
to a large, large, large mass of all these different departments or organizations and bureaucracies, each operating different parts of what has become basically the largest employer in the United States. And because of that fact, the president has been more or less you know, constrained in his executive power, even though technically under the Constitution, he should be able to wield it because we're really supposed to be run by uh, experts, not people, right? Not, not, not elected representatives. That's the shift that we're really undergoing is that elective, elective, elected representatives are really a vestigial organ of our managerial state where, where, the, uh, where the experts are supposed to rule. And so Congress cedes all of its real power over to these experts. Uh, you know, the judicial branch more and more is conceding its power over to these experts. The executive branch is doing that inside these organizations. And so, you know, that, that's why they actually fear the, the judicial branch the most is it's the one that is least captured by kind of a, all, all this distributed network. It's, it's harder to do that way. But the point is that uh, all of these branches eventually have to work the same way, which is they just wait for the experts to come down from on high and tell them the way they're actually supposed to do their jobs. And so they want to find a way to constrain the power of the executive, but they are having a problem because, well, the executive branch was specifically designed to not allow people to do that. It was specifically designed for someone to have that prerogative and make those decisions. That, that was literally how it was built in the Constitution. And so that's really an issue for them. The proposed rule addresses the move that uh, Mr. Trump tried to make late in his presidency by issuing an executive order known as, uh, for shorthand as Schedule F, which I already told you about. It would have empowered his administration to effectively transform any um, uh, effectively transform many career federal employees who are supposed to be hired based on merit and cannot be arbitrarily fired into political appointees who can be hired and fired at will. So again, it, they're pretending that the, all these people in the civil service were just hired on merit. You know, they, they're they're experts in their field. Uh, they're they're neutral. They're just trying to do their job. But actually, all of their jobs have political implications. That's why they're there. They're, they're government jobs. Uh, they are they have a government official, an elected government official who is highly political in charge, in theory at least, the president. And so uh, they are politically charged jobs from the very beginning. What the uh, what the left is hoping for is basically that the progressivism becomes the null hypothesis, right? The thing that you have to disprove. So basically everyone is is inherently progressive. That's what it means to be qualified, right? That's how they do this because the colleges are all very left-leaning they're all very left-wing, uh, left and so to become a, a an expert, you must become a leftist, and so that's the same thing. And so you, in order to remove somebody, you must prove that they are unqualified, but their qualification is their leftism, right? And so they're saying, oh, well, all these people are qualified; they're meritorious, you know, in their hiring, and so they're not political appointees. But of course, they're political appointees. You've just made that political appointment the norm. Uh, career civil servants include professional staff across the government who stay on when the presidency changes hands. This is what they mean when they talk about the deep state, right? The president might come or go, but the guys deep in the bowels of the bureaucracy, they're going to be there for 30 years waiting for that pension check. And they're the ones who are going to drive the government forward. Um, the, they vary widely, including law enforcement officers and technical experts as at agencies that Congress created to make rules aimed at ensuring the air and water are clean, uh, uh, are clean, food, drugs, and consumer products are safe. So again, that authority that was vested in Congress is handed over to these agencies. 
And so it's no longer effect, elected officials making that, but all of that power that once used to exist inside the Congress and elected officials is now handed over to these experts who are unaccountable, who are not elected, who have no connection to the people, who are can't get fired, you know, because again, they're meritoriously hired, right? That, that's the whole point, civil service protection. And so they are safe to make their, their progressive policies with no real feedback or consequence from the voters. Mr. Trump and senior advisors on his team came to believe that the career officials who raised objections to their policies on legal or practical grounds, including some of their disputed immigration plans, were deliberately sabotaging their agenda, which of course they were, right? <laughs> These people were not just, oh, we'll just have practical concerns. Uh, yeah, uh, but your practical concerns are that this disagrees with your own personal political preferences. Uh, so this happened all the time. Portraying federal employees as unaccountable bureaucrats, which they were. Uh, the Trump team uh, was ar uh, has argued that removing job protections for those who have any influence over policymaking is justified because it's too difficult to fire them. Yes, if you have an employee who specifically won't do the job you ask them to because it goes against their political leanings, the only option is to fire them. That's it. Like You can't just give them eternal jobs and expect them to be accountable. If they can't get, if they're not hired or, or, or fired, and they're not elected or removed, then there's no accountability at all. And unaccountable people will do whatever they want, by definition. That's how people work. Uh, critics saw the move as a throwback to the corrupt 19th century patronage system. Shout out to the good old boys. That patronage they're worried about when all federal jobs were partisan spoils rather than based on merit. Now, again, this is a beautiful sentence because there's so much packed into this sentence, right? In this sentence, there's the assumption that this is not already a spoil system. That the left has not already handed out these positions based on a spoil system. That these people are not already part of the progressive uh, patronage machine. Because, of course, they are. They went to schools they got, that were progressive. They got degrees uh, that were progressive. They majored in areas and became specialists in areas uh, that, informed, that were informed by progressive ideology. And that ensured that they would get progressive jobs that they would hold in perpetuity. So these people are already part of the patronage system. They're already part of the spoil system. What they're saying is we don't want you to have a, a spoil system. Patronage is for us. It's for our guys, not for your guys. And so we want to cut off your ability to do this. So I'm not going to read this whole thing because it just kind of goes uh, more and more on to kind of uh, what we've been talking here. But basically, it's this just them saying, yeah, everything that Republicans are worried about, all this deep state stuff, all this, uh, you know, uh, patronage network stuff, all this stuff they were about. Yeah, sure, it's all true, but it should only be for us. Yeah, of course, it's real, but 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 it's logical because our guys do it. And so that, that's why it should continue to exist. And so they realize the problem, right? They realize what's going on here. They understand that there's a little bit of danger in the fact that the right has finally recognized where the power really sits. And so because the right's no longer playing this game where they just get into power and say, oopsie daisy, uh, we're here. I guess we'll try to press some legislation. Oh, nobody in the federal government did anything. Guess we've been voted out. Okay, oh, now the left comes back in and you guys just go back to making everything super progressive. Now that the right has figured out that it's about personnel, that it's about the deep state, that it's about uh, these patronage networks. Now that the right is willing to play ball the same way that the left is, or at least some of the right is, most of the right unfortunately still does not recognize this. You still have people fighting against this natural review type folks. But there is more of the right that understand this. Certainly the Trump administration and people who are on it understand this. And because of that, they want to get rid of this because that's a danger to their power. That's a danger to their monopoly on what is politically effective. 
And that's really the battle that people like me are, 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 and other, others are fighting inside the conservative movement. We're trying to explain to conservatives, sorry, but you have to be politically effective. This game you play where you're like, oh, we're all our principles. Don't let us do the things the left do. That's not going to work. Okay. The left is winning because they have a patronage network. The left is winning because they're willing to give people jobs and benefits. The left is winning because they were willing to look at a specific group of people and say, our existence, our uh, winning benefits you. And so you should be loyal to us because they're willing to do that. They win in the long term, right? Because they're willing to capture institutions to push things in their direction, even when they're out of power, even when they're not uh, elected. That is why they continue to win. And so people like me are trying to explain to many of these conservatives who are like, oh, that's not our principles, man. You know, elections and, you know, you, you never promise anyone anything. And it's all about marketplace of ideas. And then, you know, you, you just keep winning elections and that's how the whole thing works. No, it's not. And so, so, and, and the Democrats know it's not, which is why they're worried and they're writing articles like this because they're trying to keep, uh, you know, the Trump administration and those who might come after from actually understanding how the game is played. All right, guys, got a couple super chats here real quick. So let's go over here. In, uh, in hoc signo vinces, sorry, I need to uh, up my Latin pronunciation game. Hello, sir, uh, for 10 uh, pounds. Thank you very much. Uh, hello, sir. Always miss your live streams. Finally caught one. Great as always. Well, thank you very much, man. I appreciate that. Like, I know you're over in the UK there probably. So, uh, you know, I was just over there a month ago or, uh, or so. So it was very nice. But I understand time difference, everything. It's hard to catch these guys. Of course, I love the live streams. I know a lot of you guys come here just to, to, to do the live streams. But of course, a lot of people also uh, watch on YouTube later. They watch on Rumble, Odyssey. Uh, they listen on the podcast. They watch on Blaze TV. And that's a really important part of the experience, too. Uh, I really appreciate you guys who are showing up there. The podcast has has grown to the size of the YouTube channel or beyond it at this point. So so people are listening in all kinds of different ways. But of course, it's always great to have you here live talking, interacting with the chat and everything like that. So really appreciate it, man. Uh, Valero uh, 393 uh, for $10. Great to meet you and your buddy at the conference. Yeah, man. Uh, speaking of, you know, getting to meet people over the UK, Valero was over there. So it was really awesome to get to talk to him. Keep guiding the boomers to the realities that the Constitution is not a sacred text and that the GOP and the 90s libs like brand are not going to save us. Yeah, man, again, really appreciate that. It's great meeting you. And uh, yeah, do, doing my best to, to help people understand, uh, you know, we're, we're on your side. We're fighting for the same thing, but we just need to understand these things are, you know, essential. Constitution, very important to, to our identity, to our way of life. Uh, but it is not in and of itself what, what makes America what it is. Um, and people, you know, who, who are, who have recently fallen off the liberal train, maybe not your best leaders, fine to have them on there, but, uh, but, but not your best leaders in the long run. Don't, don't, don't jump in front of bullets for them. Okay. Um, Deuce Boogaloo for $10. Uh, look at Dave Smith's comment under Louis CK calling him a brilliant mind. There's an odd common notion that being witty means that you're smart, smart, but really most comics are idiot savants at best. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've talked to Dave. I've been on Dave's show. I like Dave. Uh, he's a cool guy. Uh, look, looking forward to talking to him again at some point because we we uh, we made some good progress. But I think there's more to discuss there. Uh, I think uh, Dave's probably just being kind of professionally courteous. You know, he he's a, a high profile comedian. He's familiar, probably friends with people like Louis C.K. Uh, highly respects his ability. Look, Dave, Louis C.K. is smart in a way, as you're saying. Maybe an idiot savant is the right way to say it. But Louis C.K. is smart in a way. But that's a problem with our society right now, right? We confuse intel intelligence with wisdom, right? So Louis C.K. might be uh, linguistically clever, 
might understand the nuances of society and humor, social relations in a way that allows him to craft a joke and become very successful. That is, of course, a, a kind of intelligent. He, he is brilliant in that way. But that is not the same as understanding kind of like how society works. In fact, I found in many ways uh, that that the the in the smarter people get, sometimes the harder it is for them to relate to like how common people build and form civilizations, societies, work to mutual goods, form those kind of things. It seems like there is a certain level of intelligence you need to operate a society, but there is, and I'm going to make Ed Dutton somewhere. Ed Dutton is screaming at me, but there is a certain level of intelligence where uh, pe people seem to, to have a hard time kind of grasping why you have to work together, why, you know, you, people need each other, why we have certain norms and safety systems built into society and how that kind of allows us to flourish. So I don't think Louis C.K. is an idiot in that sense, but obviously uh, he has allowed, you know, his, his, his fox-like mind to break down all of the things that kind of bind a society together. And because he's done that, he is unable to understand some basic things about like how societies actually work and how he, you know, they got to the point where he can enjoy the abundance that he's looking at now. It's just the truth that look, there, there, there's different types of intelligence and Louis C.K. has one and not another. And that, that that's pretty much uh, very much on display in that clip there. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for coming by. I really appreciate it. It was great seeing everybody. Hope you enjoyed the show today. Like I said, a little different where we're jumping around a little more, uh, but I want to be able to do that. You know, sometimes I, I, I often try to go for the deep dive because there's so many people doing the news of the day stuff. Uh, but today I wanted to, to hit on a bunch of different uh, topics. And so it was good to be able to work with you guys and do that. And of course, if it's your first time here, please make sure that you go ahead and subscribe to the YouTube channel. Just hit 34,000 on the YouTube channel, which is very nice. Thank you for subscribing there. And of course, if you would like to get these broadcasts as podcasts, make sure that you subscribe to the Aaron McIntyre show on your favorite podcast network. Uh, I have a piece that just came out on the blaze on why the United States is a people and not just a set of ideologies. So make sure that you check that out, guys. Thanks for coming by. And as always, I will talk to you next time.